Welcome to Superhumane Vitae, a podcast where we discuss comic books, graphic novels, and stories inspired by comic books and graphic novels and other forms of medium. Not only will we be discussing the artistic qualities and literary devices within these stories, but we'll be bringing in a Catholic perspective. My name is John Kamiski. And I'm Brendan Lyons. And we are excited to begin discussing the classic DC Comics Elseworlds story, Kingdom Come. In this story, it is a possible future in which most of the DC heroes that we recognize have long since retired and the newest generation of would-be superheroes are running amok and generally causing chaos in their local communities. So, Brendan, this is your first time reading this, is that correct? That's correct, yes. This is, uh, I am a newbie to Kingdom Come. I'm not, as people who listened to our last episode will will know, our our episode zero will know I'm not quite as well-versed in the comic books as as John is, so... But yes, this is this is my first time reading through it. Uh, I came in with very uh, well with with no expectations aside from what John hyped up. So um, didn't know what I was getting into, didn't know what I'd get out of it. But uh, sometimes that's just how I like to do things. So yeah, um, overall, I'd say I liked it. It was definitely a different take on comics than what I'm used to. Well, graphic novels from what I'm used to, which is to say not a lot. I don't have the experience, as I said, but. Um, it's, uh, I don't want to say grim, but I don't know why I wouldn't want to say that because that's probably the most accurate way of describing it. But I'll just go ahead and, and say that it is, it is a bit of a grim look at, uh, at that future. But I, I think it, it brought some interesting issues up about maybe a little about human nature, but I think a big one is the nature, the nature of authority, especially as it relates to strength, which is, if you think about it, it's, that's a pretty big issue in the, uh, in the superhuman world, you know, when you're stronger than everybody else, does it make you an authority? Who is the authority over you? And do you have to listen to an authority? So I, I kind of explored what it looks like when you don't listen to an authority because you're the most powerful person. You can do whatever you want. So yeah, I, I found it pretty interesting. I found it to be an interesting exploration of that subject and really just the, uh, the genre itself. Happy. I'm excited to talk about it. Excellent. Yeah, it's not exactly a cheery romp, is it, through the land of DC's <laughs> pantheon, so to speak, of superheroes? No. If it's not grim, it's at the very least sobering, I would say. It's, it's, a, it's a fairly, uh, it gives one pause for sure. Oh, absolutely. I had hands when I started, but it's just pause now. <laughs> and so concludes our episode. <laughs> The end. <laughs> it's nice uh, having you all, folks. The beginning and the end. You've heard it right here. Well, so we know some people uh, listening will have been reading along with us. Uh, not everybody, though. So for, uh, for those people who haven't been reading, John, you want to give us a, uh, I guess, a summary of the first part of the book? Sure. So first, Kingdom Come was published in August of 1996. So it's developed a bit of a reputation or a pedigree, if you want to call it that. It's pretty well revered in the comics community as a well composed piece. It's comprised Great of four illustrations, issues. too. Sorry to cut in. Uh, the illustrations are wonderful. Uh, it's just a beautiful oh, yeah. book. Oh, yeah. So Mark Wade has been 
the business for some time now and he's he's got a great track record on the writing side of things but definitely the art stands out among most other comic book pieces alex ross handles it and he's known for both his painting technique which is not necessarily the most common way to approach the artistic chores for comics and also just the style of his work he uses models or actual people that he knows as references for his art Hmm. which helps lend to the realism that he tends to go for and i would i would almost describe some of his style is sort of touching on norman rockwell type territory yeah yeah i think uh i think you're right in that it certainly has a very realistic look to it and i don't know yeah i'm not not much of an artist but i would say that the color palette has that has a similar feel that sort of um not earthy tones but you know it's not your flashy comic it's it's pretty yeah it's it's it's, i kind of muted tones but not in like a dark dreary way kind of just a maybe a realistic way (laughs) sure and it's (laughs) It's sure. well no i i was going to say that it's even interesting i'm i'm glad you you kind of bring up that it's between the palette and the stylistic choices in the art it it almost runs counter to some of the trends that were happening in the 90s which were making costumes more quote unquote futuristic or edgy more pockets mm. more blades more mullets maybe not mullets longer so i think superman has a mullet at one point doesn't he yeah yeah. he has a ponytail yeah which does actually touch on some of the artistic choices made during the time even in superman's depiction so there's going to be elements in fact in the story that resist the direction that comic book publishers were taking with the characters who felt that the way that superheroes were portrayed in decades prior was maybe not being taken seriously by their readers. And so even in the costume choices, they look very classic in many ways. There's definitely some radical departures as maybe we'll touch on. For instance, Green Lantern is more like an armored knight and the Flash is, if not upgraded in his powers, he's developed so much in the ways that his powers manifest that he's almost like a phantom. He appears to be vibrating, at least. Right. But Superman, for instance, or Wonder Woman, they look a little closer to what you'd see in the so-called Golden Age of Comics. And that's partly on purpose, from what I understand. So that's an element of this. There's a, a few different artistic layers at work. One of them has to do with sort of that, if you want to call it metatextual critique on how comic book stories and characters were handled in decades prior compared to how they were being portrayed then. But then, of course, as we'll, I'm sure, touch on throughout our discussion, even from the title, you can kind of get the sense of the biblical allegory and symbolism from the get-go. And occasionally. It's not just, it, yeah. Occasionally it does come up. <laughs> You're just, a, just a smidge, just a pinch. That's That's a little sarcasm. It's actually, there's several comic stories that would borrow or riff off of biblical motifs or or references but this one's pretty consistent in terms of it even past the cover we're going to encounter actual excerpts from revelations and they take their own spin with 
how they want to take those in the context of this fictional universe. Oh, yes. In fact, our main character, John, well, our guide is, uh, is a man of God. Go figure. Well, so um, should we go ahead and get into a, a summary there? What do you think? Sure. Yeah. So that was a maybe a brief divergence as far as some of the, oh, that was pretty the interesting, actually, I think. Thanks. Not to toot our own horn, but. Well, you know, once in a while. <laughs> So, so tell your friends about the podcast. (laughs) Subscribe, subscribe, subscribe. Smash Uh, that subscribe button. That's right. (laughs) Smash it like the Hulk, friends. Do us a favor. So, John, we're not crossing universes yet, so let's stay in DC, shall we? Oh, fine. If we must. The story starts off with. Wesley Dodds, who is the Golden Age Sandman. So this is a character that that goes back quite a ways in comics uh, and one of the original superhero teams, really. And it's appropriate both in terms of kind of him functioning as a John the Apostle stand-in. He's having visions and as a character associated with sleep and dreams and visions and that sort of thing. Not to mention the idea of a first generation, so to speak, superhero filling that role, a la John the Apostle mm. being someone who is of the original apostles. I thought it was it was a neat choice, but at any rate, so well, no, that's Wesley interesting. Dodds. I didn't know that about Wesley Dodds actually. Um, so that actually really kind of ties the whole thing in more than I realized. <laughs> so good, yeah. I, so I thank know. you for that tidbit. Absolutely, I know just enough to be dangerous sometimes. Uh, <laughs> yeah so so we begin the story with these visions and what we find is norman mckay who's the pastor in wesley's life ends up having something of a crisis of faith in the midst of things really just kind of getting out of hand with the superhuman populace that surrounds him at some point Norman McKay actually ends up receiving visions of his own, and he's guided by a character called the Spectre, who is also somebody that one finds in the quote-unquote Golden Age of Heroes. He was part of the Justice Society of America, along with Wesley Dodds. But the Spectre is functioning as something of a guide or a spiritual, I don't know, associate or somebody who accompanies Norman McKay as he sees things escalate more and more between normal human beings like you and I and figures who position themselves as the protectors or heroes within the communities, despite the fact that they're actually tearing things apart with (laughs) petty turf wars. So these are difficult times to live in. The superheroes that are causing this trouble are probably two generations out, it seems like, because over the course of the story, we see characters like Superman and Wonder Woman and Batman who have considerably aged. They have a lot of life behind them. But then you see (laughs) characters that were sidekicks or apprentices to them. So for instance, the original Robin of Batman and Robin, he's an adult at this point. So it's, it's really kind of the grandchildren or a couple generations removed from, say, Superman or Batman, who are mm-hmm. really kind of directionless and provoking the governments of the world to take more drastic measures. And Superman is being eventually pulled out of his self-imposed exile or retirement to try to set things right. 
And that's kind of how Self-imposed things... Self-imposed exile. But how, what, how could this have happened? How indeed, uh, Brendan. <laughs> well, that's what we're going to find out. In, indeed. Follow us, dear listener, if you dare. Please dare. Please do. So it's a mess. These new superheroes are not very heroic and they fight over places to save. Pretty much. It's not great. Lots of things falling. Got some things exploding. You know, just another Tuesday. Another Tuesday. What does Norman McRae do, John? So Norman McKay is... I call him McRae. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. (laughs) That's okay. I'm sure his closest associates always call him McRae just as an affectionate gesture. Yeah, McCray-Cray. McCray-Cray. He's always talking about specters. That's... Just so. That was my best segue to when the Spectre actually shows up. <laughs> right. So, so Norman's really trying to grapple with a tragedy that really hits home at the beginning of the story, which is that Kansas is the victim of a fallout from a supervillain that absorbs power or energy. So the Parasite, who is a longtime Superman foe and is known for a voracious appetite in draining the life force out of people or energy out of electrical systems or however he's depicted. But as the name implies, he's possessed of a constant hunger for energy. And some of the newer heroes back him into a corner and with disastrous consequences cause... Actually, I'm glad I'm articulating this out loud because it's not the parasite himself who causes the explosion, but a hero called Captain Adam who incidentally also absorbs energy, but more specifically radioactive energy typically. Mm -hmm. So he's injured in the course of this reckless confrontation. And this prompts essentially the equivalent of a a nuclear explosion. The radiation. A very, very, very large nuclear explosion. (laughs) Right, which is, is tragic and disastrous in terms of the loss of human life, but it also makes the land unusable, unlivable. And so mm. the agrarian heart of America has been rendered essentially sterile. And mm-hmm. Norman McKay, as a pastor, is trying to comfort his flock and to give them the hope of God. But he himself is pretty shaken by the events that he's been hearing in the news about this. And it's more or less in the wake of this inability to accept hope and faith in his own life that specter appears to him in the church building that he operates out of works i don't know that's his parish do we call it a parish he's not a he's he's uh he's a minister sure he's i don't know they call it a parish uh, that's well, my catholic is showing i don't know I, I was just gonna say it's like well this this is uh reflective of a Catholic perspective. I'm at a loss for what's sort of the appropriate way to. Well, it's his congregation. I think sure. One of the ways uh, is is a way that people refer to. There you go. Uh, Protestant church, their congregation, depending on the Protestant church. He seems to be uh, perhaps Baptist or Methodist, uh, something along those lines. That doesn't really matter. Let's move on. Sure, and maybe we'll <laughs> we'll circle back at a later time in this episode or subsequent one. But a fun fact is that Norman's depiction is actually based off of the father of the writer, Mark Wade, oh. who himself 
not Mark, but his father was a minister of some kind. Is oh wow. Understanding. Mm-hmm. So there you go. Fun fact. So the specter makes himself known in his usual eerie fashion as he's wont to do through a stained glass window. And he approaches Norman, who understandably is kind of freaked out. He's pretty concerned, but the specter assures him that he's there to accompany him and that Norman possesses a certain stability or value as a quote unquote normal human being, as somebody with Uh, reverence for God. And he convinces Norman that he's really an appropriate vehicle for the visions that will follow. Now there's more on that later, correct? Yeah. They talk a little bit about why they have to work together. They do. They, in bits and pieces throughout the narrative, they unpack a bit of why the specter chooses anybody at all and why Norman would be a choice for that. But excellent. at the beginning, the, the specter is a fairly mysterious figure, save for the fact that he's an agent of God and he has a somber responsibility put upon him that there's some judgment that's going to pass for the events that are about to unfold. Well, all right. So we have specter, we have Norman McCray, McKay, who I'm going to keep mispronouncing his name. That only leaves... Uh, superheroes to add to the equation pretty much we handing this back how, how are we <laughs> sorry i was taking a a quick look at my notes some of the stuff are kind of artistic elements i was trying to decide if i was going to throw those in or not in terms of in the early part of this story there's a statue like when norman's kind of just walking through town there's a statue oh, yeah. of justice that's fallen and so that's kind of symbolic of sort of justice being overturned but also and i think you have this in your notes i was kind of uh tickled by some of the the references in one display window which includes under the hood by hollis mason yes i got that one (laughs) okay so maybe it's worth mentioning because it's it's not doesn't have a direct impact on the story but i love the Mm -hmm. fact that there is like a couple of nods that that one was one that stood out well i'll I'll tell you actually the the existence of Hollis Mason and Under the Hood. For those unfamiliar, that's uh, tried. I try not to delve too deeply and reveal that I don't know that much. But Hollis Mason was from Watchmen, and he uh, he he was uh, he is the owl. That's not correct. He's not the owl. He looked like an owl. <laughs> it doesn't. The, I'm, the important. <laughs> I'm actually kind of embarrassed. Matters, I should know. I should know. The thing that matters is that I'm actually trying to point out is that one of the big themes in in watchmen was of course oversight yes who has oversight uh when you have superheroes and um even exploring something like dr manhattan being so far away beyond what anybody could ever handle what importance is certain authorities and where does he get his authority from that's something that i think is actually very important to this story but we'll get to that later so stick around Yes, please. Yes, please, and thank you. All right. So speaking of Kansas. Speaking of Kansas. Norman McKay and Spectre do not head to Kansas, but it certainly looks like it. Indeed. Right. So when we meet Superman, we do find him in a rural setting, which could be Kansas. And it kind of leaves maybe the reader wondering sort of how this could be. 
but I mean, he's Superman, so he could go anywhere. So it's, it's not really explicit where he is at first, but point is Superman is not in his superhero regalia, but he's no ladies. He is in fact in overalls and nothing else. Oh boy. Oh my. If you weren't going to read it before, I just might swoon. I just (laughs) might faint. Yeah. He's, he's rolling up his sleeves and uh, doing just some labor. Well, you know, as much as one could call it hard labor for Superman, but Mm -hmm. he's kind of living a quiet existence at this point. There's no indicator that he's rescuing people, cats out of trees, anything like that. Um, No, it's very reminiscent of what you or I might do on a Saturday, you know, tend to the horses, lift a tractor by ourselves, you know, just what I normally do. I don't know about you. Sure. I, I can't tell you how often I'm taking out the trash and then, oh, you know, there's a tractor needs moving. So just let's hoist it up, boys. With one hand, even. Sure. No sweat. (laughs) Yeah, we find that Superman's seclusion is pretty mysterious at first. Eventually, we might come to the conclusion that it's the Fortress of Solitude or something like that. Wonder Woman approaches him and is trying to convince him to return to the world. And we get the sense that Superman's really removed himself in a pretty conscious way for some time now. And it becomes established that I think it's 10 years. I think it's uh, a decade-long hiatus for him, so to speak. And it's, it's interesting to me at this point, the way it unfolds leads one to imagine Superman as more or less a Christ figure, which would not be the first time. But he's removed himself from the rest of human society. He's in a place that actually simulates what he considers home, which would be Kansas. It's not Kansas. It's, in fact, in an artificial setting. And for somebody who was from another planet, this still remains what he considers home. This is where he grew up. He was adopted by working people, blue-collar parents. And so in that respect, I guess, you could see it as almost like how Jesus took up the occupation, presumably, of his father Joseph. So as I'm reading this, I'm, I'm thinking of it as... Jesus before, after his ascension, but before his second coming is sort of the way it's being presented, that he was acting as a savior figure, he's removed himself, and he's about to re-enter it from the home that is most familiar to him. But of course, the key difference, as we'll find out, is that he's almost hiding Superman. There's an attitude of resignation or disenchantment with humanity. And we find that maybe most clearly seen when Wonder Woman tries to refer to him as Clark, which readers of comics are pretty familiar with as his secret identity, as his quote-unquote human alias. But he actually takes offense to that, and he, he really pushes back on it. And just from that alone, the reader can surmise that he's really, he's pretty done with humanity at this point. I wouldn't go so far as to say that he acts with hatred, but he's he's pretty resigned in, in where he is in life. So uh, yeah, I think disinterest may be the word, or at least uh, as we'll we'll kind of eventually get to, but that sort of a feeling of being being scorned uh, more than anything, I would think. The the idea that he's he he may be a self-imposed exile, but it's not without uh, uh what's the word I'm looking for here? It's not without context from the human side without them more or less doing something but i don't want to get ahead of ourselves but i think uh, i think that's a fair thing to notice uh, i know we talked about this 
uh, episode before we did plan a little bit guys i know it doesn't sound like it but mm-hmm. <laughs> um you mentioned the idea of a, a christ who is kind of disengaged after and then he'll come back later and uh, there are some people who think that that's the the reality of god that god created things and then he left and he's like okay have fun um it is of course not how we <laughs> as uh most christians think of god but um it, that is kind of the situation that we're seeing here with superman more or less in in exile, still loving Earth, but feeling being unloved by it. Sure, absolutely, I would yeah. agree. He's he may be functioning as a Christ figure in a way, but it's a pseudo Christ figure or an imperfect one. It's certainly not a mm. uh, full reflection of how we consider the events of salvation history. But. Uh, it's not necessarily, and I don't want to sound like an old guy right now, but it's not necessarily inaccurate to view Christ as someone that humanity decided you can go out to the field. We got it now. So the only thing is he wouldn't leave. (laughs) Superman did in this story. In this story. Anyway. (laughs) Okay. Continue if you would, Mr. Comiskey. Do you mind if I do? So we find around page 42, pages 42 to 50, that most of the superheroes that were allies of Superman if they haven't gone into retirement, they've kind of occupied, I don't know if unique roles is, is what I'm looking for here. But we find the Flash, Hawkman, Green Lantern, and Batman still at work in their superhero duties. Mm-hmm. But they're, they're, a lot, yeah. they're a lot more indirect at this point. The Flash is more or less invisible to the city he works. And he's moving so quickly at this point that it doesn't even register on the on the mm-hmm. visual spectrum he's just kind of getting things done and whizzing around and he's kind of this hidden guardian hawkman is a little more forward about his actions he's kind of got a more environmentalist streak it's it's pretty terrifying <laughs> if you think about it i'm not a it is. it's <laughs> I, I was just gonna say I, i'm not a, a a huge hawkman fan i i don't know i've i've not found it in me to really get into it and some of you out there could correct me on the value of of revisiting his canon but boy howdy he uh he's not messing around with this no with this here yeah no no he's he is i don't know i'm not uh, he might be more effective (laughs) no absolutely not i mean he just looks like if Smokey the bear was a real bear with wings yeah yeah (laughs) just gonna yeah that's that's a terrifying page it's only one page and i it sticks with me more than <laughs> the things. It's just terrifying, Hawkman. New respect for um, birds. Yep. Uh, oh, no, I was always afraid of birds. Oh, well, it, then you're ahead of the game here. Little dinosaurs. Scary. Yeah. Green Lantern. <laughs> He's kind of floating in orbit around Earth in a fortress that I'm assuming he made with his ring, which is also rather intimidating when I think about it, because Green Lantern has always had the ability to create what are called constructs in the comics, but basically hard, tangible objects through force of will, through just thought, imagination, and willing it into being, he can create it. And he can come up with some pretty complex, large structures. And there's been several characters that have adopted the Green Lantern identity. Usually they're not this elaborate or this big. And so it's clear that much like the Flash, the Green Lantern has really kind of reached the zenith of his capabilities and he's just a silent well, sentinel floating around ready to just kind he, of... he's sitting he's sitting on his throne looking like he just watched the green lantern 
movie um, brooding <laughs> always always wondering too soon. why they did this to him yeah i mean you're really kind of provoking a tangent here we could get into a whole sad discussion on that oh, but i i would that's not i did a lot of research for this i gotta get, back. <laughs> I gotta get to the part where i sound like a ridiculous crazy person not that oh, you do well, now fine. suffice to say no not a great movie but no. ryan reynolds batman yeah Oh, it, oh, I thought you were suggesting Ryan Reynolds as the uh, next Batman. That would have been a, uh, a great topic for discussion. <laughs> but we'll, we'll save that. Let's not do that tonight. If, if any of you out there want to hear this discussion, then definitely let us, let us know. And we'll take up. Would it, would it be, the question is, would it be morally licit, according to Catholic teaching, for Ryan Reynolds to play Batman? We'll figure it out. Mm. Send us an email. Tell us what you think. Anyway. Indeed. Batman, he's much like the Flash. He's sort of hit it. Actually, <laughs> I guess he's kind of somewhere twixt the two in terms of being very visible versus being very, well, I mean, I guess invisible would be sort of the opposite of that, wouldn't it? But he's well, he has a certain talent for being visibly invisible. That is a good way to put it. His his uh, penchant for being coming out of the shadows makes the fact that he could be anywhere pretty. Uh, and now he has robots. Now he has robots because why not? <laughs> because I guess when you've got money like that, you might as well Steve Jobs this whole operation and just send bat bots into your city. It's all Bezos, but I got you. <laughs> oh gosh. <laughs> yes. Yeah, so, uh, so at this point, Bruce Wayne has been outed. It sounds like. And so people know who he is, but I guess it's a testament to both his abilities as well as his reputation that nobody's really finished the job with this guy. He's just kind of in a, a back cave that's been wrecked as well as a mansion that's in disrepair. And he is almost single-handedly running security in his city remotely. So even though maybe physically he doesn't have the strength that he once had, he certainly has the means to still work out his mission as he sees fit, which is to scare the ever-living daylights out of people with the aforementioned bat bots. Say that 10 times fast. Great superpower. Yeah, right? So I'm kind of intrigued. There's, of course, throughout, well, maybe not of course, we're just kind of getting started, but there is a sense that superheroes, even if they're still living out their mission, even if they're still trying to protect society and make it better, that there's a distance, there's a disconnect with the people that they serve. And I don't know, I guess I come away a little undecided when I think about that. I get the sense that maybe we're supposed to think that this is in part influencing the problems that we watch unfold. At the same time, I don't know, is it kind of a virtue that they're not looking to necessarily have that confirmation or that adulation that they don't even need to be recognized? They're pretty content to do what they do as best they can without necessarily having that visibility. I don't know. What do you think about that? Well, I think, I don't know. I think, I don't know that it's necessarily presented as the problem. Hmm. I almost wonder if there's a certain level of suggestion that these sort of uh, more localized problem solving has been more effective. Mm. As I declare that Mark Wade is a, a uh, f fan of the subsidiarity model of 
<laughs> I'm just going to put words in his mouth. But, um, you know, you have you have the battle over turf on the outside. and You have these people that were kind of, you know, Superman's kind of a global hero. There's the interstellar-ish you know, nature of Green Lantern. Wonder Woman is a cross-Atlantic type person. She'll go anywhere, my understanding. But, you know, you have these people who have a city, you know, have a location. People that are focused on that, their mission isn't, isn't lost. So I may be putting, I may be fabricating thoughts that the author never had, but uh, maybe an interesting look at when you hold your focus, you could achieve a little more, but uh, that's just, that's just me talking. I really couldn't tell you what, what he's, what he's going for. Sure. Yeah. I was, I was <laughs> just intrigued that, right. On the one hand, they're still serving their local communities as responsible stewards of the abilities that they have. I guess part of what makes me question sort of the, the way that these heroes are presented, the ones that we've just described, is that on the one hand, yes, it could be that this is sort of the apex of how they live out their superheroic roles. But as we'll see later, there's questions of authority and who has rights to authority. And often superheroes lately, I guess, have been considered as sort of modern mythological figures. Superhero teams like the Justice League or the Avengers are described in terms of being a pantheon of superheroes. And I think it really kind of comes out in this story where there's an uneasy sense of these are both incredibly powerful protectors and citizens who are supporting the good of all. But there's also at a certain point almost a question of have these individuals elevated themselves to sort of the tier or position of gods and do they have a mm -hmm. right to do so? And so I think maybe that's kind of what's coming into my read of sort of those brief few pages that they've taken it upon themselves to exercise this much power in the interest of authority or the protection of others. Is it ultimately good or... Are they actually kind of accomplishing this without really considering what what the man on the street is thinking or what their needs are? If that makes sense, mm. there's they're not they're not I, among yeah. their communities. Green Lantern's floating above it all. The Flash is moving so quickly; he can't possibly be having personal relationships with any of the people that he's saving. And Batman, as we've stated, is remotely monitoring the city. So they've separated mm. themselves from the very people that they're serving. And I guess I haven't decided to what extent that's noble or in what ways that it's an erroneous way of approaching these types. Well, I mean, I wonder if there's a superhero who you could say does have a personal relationship with the people he or she serves beyond a couple people. I mean, Lois Lane and uh, what's Jimmy's last name? Oh, uh, Jimmy Olsen, <laughs> yep. Jimmy Olsen, yeah. I mean, yeah, sure, they're they're close, but Superman's not out shaking the hands of his constituents, at least not from my understanding. So, you know, well, they almost are. Well, I, I, I do actually, I, I wonder if there's a certain extent of, because the Justice League types carry themselves almost like gods, is that what uh, encouraged the new breed of superheroes to conduct themselves as gods but not as particularly responsible gods <laughs> yeah as as we as humans are wont to uh to do at, at times you know maybe the, the generation that 
captures uh, that forges uh, something a nation or a or an organization may have done it for the right reasons but when it becomes strong and gets passed down to the next generation did they pass down the strength and the virtue or did they just pass down the strength and it would appear that only the strength was passed down in this uh, particular circumstance but sure that I might mean, not be what you were talking about <laughs> i i think it's a good segue maybe into another reflection that's just occurring to me which is it's almost the way you're describing it you can almost compare it from and this is where we get a little catholic again if you were to look at how the saints are positioned in the lives of the faithful of a catholic in the prayer life somebody mm -hmm. maybe from the outside i don't know that I've, I've ever actually encountered this but somebody could maybe see oh well these people have become famous globally and people ask for their intercession and there's maybe in a weird way a certain sense of celebrity and so they they want that without recognizing that the reason that they hold such import in the lives of catholics the reason that they're given that kind of attention is because of the incredible interior life and how that manifested in their exterior living if that makes sense so mm. it's it's just interesting no, you yeah. Out. yeah well i think you're talking yeah i think i get to what you're saying it's sort of a sense of false piety that uh mm -hmm. that some people might get when they they look at they pay more attention to how saints are revered than the humility that had to come first uh, to to follow a certain certain calling because you can follow a great calling without the humility and it doesn't necessarily do you that much good if you don't you know if you uh, if you go feed the poor because people like people who feed the poor and not because the poor need to be fed and right <laughs> deserve to be fed so I mean there's your and that's kind of what we're looking at uh, this generation of superheroes now Saul how well revered everybody was and every all the other superheroes were so they but you know a newspaper can show strength it can't necessarily show inner virtue so what's everybody gonna see right so. no i think you <laughs> you've nailed that as far as that there's no there's no interior conversion or there's there's a grave misunderstanding of what these characters are striving for in the mm -hmm. context of kingdom come they're trying mm -hmm. to imitate how they perceive their forebears or forefathers or mm -hmm. Superman and, and the rest. They see it one way, but they have a complete misunderstanding of what they were fighting for. And so it really just mm -hmm. becomes destructive and petty and serves the opposite of what the more familiar to the reader superheroes, what they were mm -hmm. going for. So that leads us into the pages that follow our introduction to Batman, Superman, and the rest, which is Norman McKay and the Spectre are on a bridge, and there's a gosh, what would you call that? It's it's a uh, seems like a turf war. I think you used the right word earlier, the right phrase earlier. Sure, I was. They are fighting. <laughs> I was trying to think of what the the apparatus is that's carrying people over the bridge. I'm suddenly blanking on like what exactly that is, but oh, uh, it's a it's a check out. I just blanked on it. Right? Not a trolley. It's a, See, that's what I was thinking. Like, is I'm thinking trolley, but I'm like, no, wait, that doesn't, that's not right. Uh it's a, ca a cable car. It's a cable car. Sure. Yeah. That's yeah. So there's no, yeah, that's what it's called. It's a cable car. Mm -hmm. Yeah, sure it is. <laughs> <laughs> 
No, the, no, the you're fray, right. Tommy. Yeah. The, the song, the, the cable car song from the fray. Right. Come on. So there's a bridge. There's people on the bridge. There's people on a cable car, and as you were saying, there's there's a turf war that's breaking out, and Norman McKay and the Spectre are witnesses to this, and it's it's looking bad. It looks like there's going to be a lot of victims in the crossfire of this, and the so-called superheroes that are duking it out are completely oblivious. They really don't give any kind of notice at all to the people who are in the midst of their fight, who never asked to be a part of this. So it's looking bleak, and it's at this point that Superman makes his grand reappearance. And it is grand. As they as they say, put the fear of God into these youngins because everybody knows who this guy is. Oh yeah. Oh yeah. Superman shows up. Everybody gets their attention. Yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah. It's, uh, it's like when the real teacher shows up and you're substituting. Oh gosh. <laughs> I had that happen once when I was a substitute teacher for a while. I had that happen. Really? Once. The teacher was actually in the building. Oh yeah. The teacher was in the building, but they were doing like a, uh, I don't know, some kind of, I don't know if it was like a, a special, class not a special class but like one of the groups was having like a special event or something like that but the, the kids were not being great and the teacher showed up <laughs> i walked in and it was just you could hear a pin drop it was amazing <laughs> i i imagine you can correct me on this it must have been a strange mixture of emotions there in terms of gratitude for somebody bailing you from mm-hmm. from that but at the same time you really it, that's rough <laughs> <laughs> oh yeah you could hear a pin drop because i wasn't talking either <laughs> oh boy i also froze <laughs> well i guess that oh. speaks to uh i don't know i guess just some teachers get that training the intimidation factor they they learn how to strong presence not necessarily go. intimidation i'm sure teachers would prefer to uh-huh. be known uh-huh. as having a strong presence <laughs> mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah, so Superman shows up and and the law comes with him. Yeah. By the law, I mean the rest of the Justice League. <laughs> yeah, and that's great, right? Everything's going to be fine, right? Going to be perfect now, no question anymore. Peachy. Yeah, Norman McKay thinks so too until he gets a, a pretty strong premonition. And uh, spoilers, it's a good one. <laughs> it's a... <laughs> that uh things are are only about to get more complicated and superman's presence and his return to the world is not going to be as straightforward as people might think it's going to raise as many questions as it does bring solutions so that's uh, yep. How, yep so that's how they wrap up issue one so we'll move into issue two but that's pretty much how the, the first chapter, so to speak, of our story wraps up. Superman's been away. Superman comes back. And Norman and the Spectre are, over the course of time, finding that the solutions to the world's problems are not, are not going to be easy. That Superman doesn't have the answers. The older superheroes who are his allies don't have the answers. Yeah, it's an interesting way to, to kick things off with this story. I think. Yeah, no, it's definitely striking. It uh, paints a bleak picture. Mm-hmm. Then you have a sudden appearance of hope, and then hope gets interesting. Yeah. So is it is it your understanding um, that they go more or less directly from the bridge? They go, they beat up a bunch of other people, 
and then they fly directly over to the UN. So basically, uh, are we meant to think that there's time in between or are they, uh, they go well, on the fly there? They just So we do see for a little while another skirmish that occurs at the Statue of Liberty. And it's essentially a zealot of some kind uh, who presents himself as a patriot and he's really intimidating immigrants who are nearby. And it's, it's a whole ugly thing where it's kind of when national pride goes wrong and uh, Superman hmm. and the New League swoop in and really kind of uh, take a firm hand in, in correcting the situation. They rescue the civilians. They take down the various factions that are combating each other. And most of the people are pretty grateful. It's at this point that they do go over to the United Nations. And this is kind of where things reach a turning point. So do you want to describe sort of how this unfolds, Brendan? Oh, yes. Yes, I most certainly do. All right. Um, and here is where we get my first in-depth exploration of whether or not the actions of a superhero or a group of superheroes would be considered morally licit from a Catholic standpoint. I hope you're excited. I am. I hope this makes sense. Buckle up. So... Do it right now. <laughs> Superman and his friends show up at the United Nations, announce that they've returned, tell everyone, basically do a nice little summary of what happened. In their absence, a new breed of metahumans has arisen, so forth and so on. Uh, they have great powers. They've forsworn their responsibilities due them. Hmm. We have returned to teach them the meaning of truth and justice. Together, we will guide this new breed with wisdom. And if necessary, with force. Above all, we will restore order. We will make things right again. We will fly off without answering questions. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. That, and then that. we cut to the United Nations where someone says, ladies and gentlemen, the delegation, is there anyone here delighted with what we just heard? No. Why am I not surprised? How could they be unhappy? Superman has showed up to save the day. It's great. Well, friends, <laughs> herein lies the question. Is there any way that Superman and the rest of the Justice League have the authority to do this? Is it remotely okay for them to show up, announce that this is what they're going to do, and do it? So, John, you want to take a stab at answering that before I... <laughs> uh, <laughs> my, my initial inclination is this doesn't seem like a great way to start things off. Superman's kind of relying on... A certain amount of historical clout, I guess. A certain sense that at, at one time that he and his compatriots were considered with a lot of uh, respect. And yes, yeah, so, so he's kind of approaching it with the assumption that, hey, you know us. We've done this before. We've paid our dues. And you, you know you can expect us to do the right thing. And that's not what these kids are doing. And even as a reader, you kind of, or at least I want to trust Superman. He's supposed to embody really sort of the purest reflection of what it means to, to be a good person and a good citizen and to do what's right and to exercise justice, but not seeking vengeance or undue violence or that sort of thing. But really to kind of come in to the nations of the world and and not discuss it but to announce it that does put me ill at ease and uh obviously it's not not being taken well by by everybody here how did you end up receiving that part of the story well <clears throat> oh you gotta get ready for this one 
First off, let me start by saying, lest I be accused of cherry-picking passages uh, from church encyclicals and teachings to fit my argument, just going to point out a few things. First, I'm not speaking from a place of authority, and I did not, I was not able to do an exhaustive review of all of the encyclicals and other church teachings associated with this point. So second, disagreement, super welcome, especially if it's well-cited. Uh, one of the, my favorite things about Catholic teaching is there's a paper trail. <laughs> you can find where it came from, and I'll demonstrate that later in my, art, my uh, argument here. Third, interestingly enough, uh, what I found changed my mind, at least to a certain extent. What I read through actually moved my opinion from one side to the other. Uh, and fourth, uh, I definitely did not find a definitive answer. So uh, just keep that in mind. <laughs> Ooh. You've, so, you've got my interest. I'm really intrigued with where you're going to take it. Good. Good. I hope I keep it. <clears throat> <laughs> so I, I thought from the beginning that this was absurd, that mm. there was certainly no, no way that a group of people, superhumans as they are, you know, even if they're superhumans, could show up and say, here's a problem facing the world. We're going to fix it and just say that to the I don't know the UN, UN isn't really a governing thing body, but they do have a certain level of responsibility to you know work with the world. But it's not like they went and asked the president of the United States if they could do it either, or you know the president of India. So in my thinking, my initial thought, the best way I could find to articulate it came through um, the Summa Theologica, where we should always start. Uh, well, okay, hold on, we should start with Jesus, mm-hmm. but if. We- <laughs> If we're trying to interpret uh, certain things about human nature and uh, and law, uh, it's good to start with Aquinas. So question 95, article one, reply to objection two. As the philosopher says, it is better that all things be regulated by law than left to be decided by judges. So I am jumping all the way down to the third thing. There's three mentioned the three points of it, but Aquinas says, because lawgivers judge in the abstract and of future events, whereas those who sit in judgment of present things towards which they are affected by love or hatred or some kind of cupidity, wherefore their judgment is perverted. Since then, animated justice of the judge is not found in every man, and since it can be deflected, therefore it was necessary whenever possible for the law to determine how to judge and for very few matters to be left to the decision of men. All right, so what the heck did I say? Uh, Break it down. No, no, no. What the heck did I just say, John? (laughs) (laughs) Um, Basically, the way way I interpreted that was that it's better because people who make laws can more dispassionately look at a wide array of instances. They can look into the future and the past and a judge in this case, in my thinking, was a judge more like a biblical judge, not like a guy sitting on a bench hearing it, but still I think they would, um, I guess, maybe more like a, a Judge Judy type judge. Hear a case, listen to what's going on, rule on it. Whereas, as opposed to somebody making a law who would not necessarily be making a law about you know John's case, he's making a law about everybody's case. So in this, my understanding, Aquinas is saying that it's better to have laws govern how someone is, you know, what's legal, what's a, how someone should be ruled 
hold on than just have like a quote unquote wise person decide what happens to each different person, which is how I kind of view superheroes. So, but we can't actually think of members of the Justice League as judges because it doesn't quite, I mean, it's not quite the same thing, although at times they preside over their own locality, but mm, I don't know, not quite perfect. So after that, I came a little bit, a little bit more recent to uh, Rio Navarro, which I probably mispronounced, uh, but <laughs> I went there to try to get a better idea of uh, what we teach about the duty of leadership and how it pertains to the protection of people and the support of their pursuits. So if you'll turn to your copy of Rio Navarro to number 34, <clears throat> you'll see that rulers should nevertheless anxiously safeguard the community and all its members. The community, because the conservation thereof is so emphatically the business of the supreme power that the safety of the, okay, this is the part I highlighted. The safety of the whole commonwealth is not only the first law, but it is government's whole reason of existence. And the members, because both philosophy and the gospel concur in laying down that the object to government of the state should be not the advantage of the ruler, but the benefit of those over whom he's placed. So in short, the government's there to protect people. Ah, protecting people, that's fairly important. Uh, it does go on to say there's uh, quite a few cases, but that there are cases where there can be no question that within certain limits, it would be right to invoke the aid and authority of law. The limits must be determined by the nature of the occasion which calls for the law's interfe interference. The principal, hi Otto, my cat's here. The principle being that the law must not undertake more. Okay. <laughs> the law must not undertake more nor proceed further than is required for the remedy of the evil or the removal of mischief. So, in short, there are times within the limits of natural law that the government can take certain authoritative, authoritative action, so long as it doesn't undertake more or proceed further than it's required to remedy the evil. Can you not? This cat is bothering me for food while I'm trying to be Catholic. Okay. Um, more succinctly in the catechism, political authority must be exercised within the limits of moral order and must guarantee the conditions for the exercise of freedom. That makes sense, right? But what if the government sucks? Or at least what if the government's not up to the task? Because that's what we're really talking about here. I found most of the teachings uh, that were related to, for lack of a better way of putting it, uh, talking about bad government. Uh, sorry, sorry. <laughs> so most of the teachings I found talking about bad government deals with government overreach. You can feed him if you want. Cat. Uh, no, it's too early. He shouldn't be fit. I'm going to put him in the basement. One second. Pause. All right, and we're back. All right, okay. But what if the government sucks? Which is to say, uh, so what if the government sucks, or at least it's not up to the task? What I found dealing with bad government mostly deals with government overreach. However, one of my colleagues at the, the NCBC, at the National Catholic Bioethics Center where I work, suggested that I consider framing government complacency or impotence in terms of a sort of overreach. So I kind of took that to mean that the government, by holding its power without exercising it in a manner that would alleviate a societal issue, has gone beyond... Let me restart that. I take that to mean that the government, by holding its power without exercising it in a manner that would alleviate societal issues, has acted to harm the people through inaction. So the United Nations and Kingdom Come, for example, holds its power impotently. They can't do crap about the superheroes. So... <laughs> So with that in mind, I tried to explore what we as citizens might do when we're faced with such an overreach, which led me to, led me to probably one of the most uh, 
geez, I don't even know how, how to say it, one of the most influential documents in church teaching in the last 200 years, which I also will pronounce wrong, Gaudium et Spes. And at 74, I know everybody has Gaudium et Spes handy. And if you don't, Vatican.va uh, has, has all of these. Um, but so number 74, but where citizens are oppressed by the public authority overstepping its competence, they should, they should not protest against those things which they are objectively required for the common good, but it is legitimate for them to defend their own rights and the rights of their fellow citizens against the abuse of this authority, while keeping within those limits drawn by the natural law and the gospels. Okay, so now we're getting somewhere. It's legitimate to defend your own rights and the rights of your fellow citizens against the abuse of this authority. So eh, against the abuse of this authority, but if you think about it, if the inaction is the authority, working against it is taking action. So eh, is this a stretch? We'll see. So that tells us a little more about, excuse me, about the duty of the authorities, but still doesn't quite answer the question. Not quite. Uh, so instead of going back, you know, and working forward like I have been, I decided to come uh, all the way to basically now and then work backward. Uh, you remember earlier I said one of the nice things about Catholic teaching is there's a paper trail, and here's my paper trail. This was also uh, part of a suggestion from a colleague, and I so I went to Laudato Si, Pope Francis's, uh, I believe it's his most, one of his more recent encyclicals. So he says disregard for the duty to, so Laudato Si deals a lot with, with the environment, but I think there's there's some important points in here that I think are going are gonna to help with this. Disregard for the duty to cultivate and maintain a proper relationship with my neighbor for whose care and custody I am responsible ruins my relationship with myself, with others, and with God and with the earth. When all these relationships are neglected, when justice no longer dwells in the land, and the, uh, the Bible tells us that life itself is in danger. So I would argue that the Justice League at least believes that they're responsible for this issue because they're responsible to their neighbors and duty is being disregarded to a certain extent. It's at least being, it's not being done. So that was Laudato C 50. Come down to Laudato C 79. And at the bottom of that first paragraph, we see the phrase, the work of the church seeks not only to, rep, to remind everyone the duty of care for nature, but at the same time, she must above all protect mankind from self-destruction. Footnote 47. Footnote 47. Huh. What's that? Hmm. This passage ends with a link to our dear friend, Pope Emeritus Benedict XVI, who is kind enough to provide us with the following passage. The church has a responsibility towards creation. I'm oh, sorry, this is Pope Francis Caritas in Veritate. You can still follow along. 51. The church has a responsibility towards creation, and she must assert the responsibility in the public sphere. In doing so, she must defend not only the earth, water, and air as gifts of the creation that belonged to everyone, she must above all protect mankind from self-destruction. There is a need for what must be called a human ecology correctly understood. The deterioration of nature is in fact connected to the culture that shapes human coexistence when human ecology is respected with society, environmental ecology. Okay, so it talks about environment again, but it talks about respecting human ecology. And it's talking about the church having responsibility towards creation we're all the church. So I know Superman's not necessarily Catholic, but we're going to lump him in with humanity. So interesting. Human ecology. This is taking longer than I thought I was going to. Uh, that's okay. You may have, you may have, it's a very profound sounding term, you know, that, that you feel like it might lead to a very clear, simply understood of true, simply understood truth of human nature. And if that's so, then you can only guess who came up with the term. 
I, you're not going to guess. Oh, okay. That would be Pope, Pope St. John Paul the Great. Amazing theologian, writer, and philosopher. <clears throat> the silence that uh, you all heard from me was me being on the edge of my seat. I'm, I'm just <laughs> tossing popcorn into my mouth practically. And... So not only is God given the earth to man who must use it to, with respect for the original, pur- original good purpose for which it was given to him, but man too is God's gift to man. That is 38 from Santissimus Adus. These elements can either help or hinder his living in accordance with the truth. The decisions which create a human environment can give rise to specific structures of sins which impede full realization of those who are in any way oppressed by them. To destroy such structures and replace them with more authentic forms of living in community is a task which demands courage and patience and Superman. Naturally, that's absolutely in that document. For sure. So what I came to, if you've all seen the picture of Charlie Kelly from It's Always Sunny in Philadelphia with uh, all the crazy lines going all over, that's me. Oh, gosh. What I came to is that we as humans, we need to be stewards to creation, including each other. Disregard destroys our relationship with our neighbors. So we're going to have to do something. And everyone has the duty to care for nature and each other. Laudato si. It's more important to care for, for other humans because without other humans, we, just, we destroy the world that we have. Caritas and Veritate and Sentimus Annus. Where did I just lose it? I just lost it. Man is God's gift to man as much as anything else. And therefore, if, that, if the duty is shirked by leadership, we as a society have a duty to do something about it. Meaning Superman is within his rights to come down and say, I'm going to fix this because you can't. <laughs> as I'm as I'm listening to you, I really am trying to sort of parse out how how it all comes into play because at this point there's nothing to suggest that the US government or the other governments in the world are adding that they're contributing to this problem with the superhuman violence through corruption or abuse. Or even incompetency, to be honest. Well, I guess that's kind of the question. Really, it it almost seems to come down to. I think you brought up what impotency be yeah. a factor. Yeah. That's essentially it. Seems like what it boils down to. They just can't do anything about it. They, they can't do it now. There is a question of the extent to which Superman and the Justice League should be going to the UN and saying, "How would you like us to handle this?" Right. Yeah. They should maybe be doing that. However, there's a question of, and this is actually what I titled my document and all this, and never found a direct answer is, is there such thing as explicit versus implicit authority? Hmm. Is it implied that you have a certain authority if you're the only person who can do something? I don't know. I don't know the answer to that. And I spent six days trying to find the answer to that. And I did. So... Yeah, that's, uh, yeah. And in this story, it's difficult because you kind of come away with this impression that both, I say both sides, there's really kind of multiple, I guess the way I described it earlier was factions that are vying to have their vision realized of what justice looks like or what the world should look like. Mm -hmm. But there is almost sort of this tacit agreement that, power is really kind of 
almost what determines it. I, I guess that's not true. Mm -hmm. I guess that's not necessarily what they would argue. Um, but based, so like, why is it that Superman is can be relied upon as sort of the final arbiter of what it really means to be a virtuous and moral citizen over sort of the upstarts that have been causing trouble in the first place? That, that, that is a, that's a good point. And I do actually have a Christian answer for that. Great. And yeah, so for the readers out there, uh, when I quote or bring up the, uh, the Summa Theologica, I, uh, I am using the newadvent.org uh, Summa. So it's the enforcement of a uh, unjust enforcement or any enforcement of human law that defies natural law okay. would be without justice. Okay. You think by this point, having listened to how many episodes of Pints with Aquinas, I would practically have <laughs> half the Summa or something memorized, or I would have some idea. All right. Well, we, we can move on, and okay. I'll just, someone in the comments can throw me my citation. So uh, let me know when right. we're recording again. Sure. So do you want that to be where we leave off until you find that, or do you just want to insert as like a separate like edited in kind of thing. What would oh, no, I just thought we just, we can just continue. Okay, and, sure. Because people know, someone will know. All right. So do you, can you repeat, do you remember your question? Yeah, it basically, how does Superman or his allies have any greater moral authority than sort of this new generation of heroes? Mm. So where, where does he sort of take, yeah, I mean, I guess I kind mm. of, articulated yeah I, I remember we'll, we'll use your original way of, okay. of speaking of asking it but um i think i think on the question of superman's authority versus the other superheroes authority uh it comes down to the question of whether their actions whether or not their actions conform with natural law so mm. any human law that contradicts natural law is unjust Therefore, it would follow that any action, or I would think it would follow that any action that violates natural law would be an unjust action, even if it's enforcing a law. So the the manner in which uh, these laws are enforced by Superman versus, uh, say, Magog, who will meet sooner soon enough, is entirely is entirely different. One generally conforms to truth, justice in the American way. Uh, uh, sorry, I mean to uh, natural law and the others not yeah. so not so much and not even necessarily natural law but and, and we'll get into this little I, it's probably going to be next episode actually since we've been talking about this for a while but the execution of law how it can be executed who has the right to execute it and uh when it can be <laughs> executed that way so we talked a little about about authority but it's also a question of punishment who can exact it and when it's okay to punish somebody in, in what way so i'm not going to get too far into uh anything like the death penalty i don't want i don't want edward fesser to uh write an attack art attack article on oh me boy. decrying my hmm. bad catechesis although if edward fesser is listening to our podcast that's i'm, I'm okay with that <laughs> 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 several lines i, I applaud your boundless optimism yeah thanks okay but yeah that does that does bring some interesting thoughts to to chew on to reflect on 
even outside of our discussion as far as how those factor in and that is the the natural law so yeah because that that would suggest that there is an objective good there is objective morality mm-hmm. and it's it's a matter of how do we recognize it and what does that look like in the church would suggest what that would be so yeah i i think mm. w- without that it does really kind of start to unmoor itself this, this oh yeah whole I, I think yeah. i think and I probably wouldn't be Catholic if I didn't feel this way. I think most uh, conflicts or discussions become unmoored uh, without an objective uh, truth or, or because, and arguably, and um, I don't want to give too much away from the future, but uh, from later in the book, but uh, if the morality is, is relative, if there's no exact good or bad, then the actions of Magog that happened later uh, as demonstrated by a certain Daily Planet article that comes up, there are just because if there's no moral authority that is absolute, then there's the best substitute we have is the social contract of popularism, the idea of the society is okay with it, and society hands the rights to somebody over to, to certain things over to somebody, then they can't be right or wrong. Right? They can only be right if they decide they're right. Really, I mean that's. Probably John Locke would smack me in the face for saying it that way, but you know, it, it, I think it can very clearly follow from a relativist idea that we just hand over to somebody to choose that's right. Now, I'm not saying that's what democracy is. Please don't tell people that I came out against democracy today. I did not. It's not. It's not what happened. Don't go on Twitter and say Brendan is against democracy. I didn't say that. <laughs> didn't say that i said the truth cannot be decided by popular vote there you are folks running lines coming in hard and fast sound bites quick takes i'm Uh, not a monarchist is that is that a crown on your shelf back there looks like it's it's ready it's in the wings no it's my daughter's well that's fitting. i'm not a market monarchist but she's a princess can't argue with that right so yeah it's it's a pretty breezy succinct announcement that superman proffers he's just kind of yeah he's in he leaves and uh the world's nations are kind of left to decide what they think about all this and norman mckay i I think i think what what i was wondering what i'm sure you're wondering what the world is wondering not so much what the what everybody else thinks about it but what does batman think about it Hmm, indeed Yes, that would be uh, a question, I'm sure, hovering on some people's minds. And, oh, would you look at that? We find ourselves hovering over none other than Wayne Manor from a Superman's eye view. All right. Well, we hate to leave you at the entrance of Wayne Manor, listeners, but we'll have plenty more to discuss. And so look forward to some more discussion about Kingdom Come in future episodes, picking up where we left off in Kingdom Come, Issue 2, The Descent into the Batcave. So until then, please subscribe to the podcast. That way you can be sure to get the next episode whenever it comes in and pick up right where we left off. And we'll have in time an email for you to be able to contact us with comments, with questions, non sequiturs, any great jokes that you have. But in the meantime, if you want to reach out to us, you can contact Brendan. And Brendan, how can they do that? All right. Well, if you are angry at me, disappointed in me, upset, uh, you can't hate my face yet, 
But if you would like to hate my face, my pictures are on my uh, my Twitter, which is at the library with an L Y. That's at T H E L Y O N B R A R Y. And I have a Facebook at Brennan J Lyons, author. I'm looking nerdy. There's a crucifix in the background. You should be able to find me. So if you have any thoughts, complaints, corrections, and if you want to buy a book, He's you can man. go there. <laughs> <laughs> I'm your man. So yeah, give us a shout out. Tell us what you thought. Tell me why I was wrong. Tell Johnny you love his voice, and I'll make sure that he hears all the positive things you say about him, and I crush the horrible things you say to me deep down in my heart. You are, <laughs> you're a good man, Charlie Brown. Can I mention that name? Can I name drop that? Are we going to get sued by the Charles Schultz estate? I, I don't know. Maybe. But you know what? Sometimes lawsuits bring notoriety. So we'll see you next time. We look forward to having you. Please leave a review if you'd be so kind. Also, again, subscribe because we definitely want you here for the full ride. We've got a lot planned for you and we're very excited to have all the company we can get. Until next time. Um, I, I am about to melt my library card with comic books. <laughs> old library card. <laughs> I don't know. All right. Well, thanks for joining in. Very happy uh, that you're here. And John, it was great talking to you, as it always is. Likewise, Brendan. Loving the insights. Getting me thinking. All right. Have a good one. <laughs>